If you would be turning in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, we'll be in verses 10 through 16 uh, as we continue our, in our sermon series on the book of Malachi. And again, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, all my questions are not rhetorical, so you can answer out. I know it's a Presbyterian church, but you're safe here, maybe. Um, so uh, the first thing I want to ask you all, and this is critical, you've already heard this this morning, what is the indicative on which all of the imperatives in Malachi is founded. God's love for us as people, right? And that's critically important because God first loved us. That means that we can now love him as we are commanded with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can love our neighbor uh, as he has loved us, right? And don't forget that Malachi is carrying a burden. This is something that he is calling the people to do. Their culture looks very similar to ours. In fact, one of the reasons that we read the call to worship that we read this morning is to remind us that our affluence can actually blind us to the love of God. All that we have can make us sometimes think that we're doing pretty good and that we don't really need him, uh, and that we don't really need his law, and that we don't really need to be obedient, that we're covered, we're fine, as evidence of God's blessing in our life. Oftentimes, that's just his sustaining grace. And we need to make sure that we're a thankful people, filled with gratitude, and seek to honor the love that he has uh, given to us with how we live. This is why Malachi starts straight away with worship. If you remember, uh, and this is a little bit harrowing for me since I stand in this position, uh, he starts with the priests and he calls them uh, to account for the way in which the people are living because as the priests teach, so go the people. And so they were failing to do their job. You remember they were accepting sacrifices that they wouldn't offer to a governor, uh, an earthly king, an earthly leader, and yet they thought that God should accept whatever, that he should just merely be happy because they showed up and tried. Unfortunately, I think that can be our attitude sometimes, that we can say, Lord, what more do you want from me? I did everything I could to get out of bed after staying up till three in the morning. I mean, gosh, how about a little power of the Holy Spirit here, right? So we have to be careful of that same attitude in us. Remember the situation they're in. They're not necessarily worshiping idols. Actually, they've been returned from exile. The temple's been rebuilt. Everything should be going pretty well, but they're not receiving the kind of accolades and the blessings that they thought they deserved. And so they were going their own way. God in great grace comes to them and says, I have loved you. So the next thing that he's going to deal with as he comes out of worship, because worship, that is the loving the Lord our God part, right? So he deals with that first. The next thing he's going to deal with makes a lot of sense in terms of creation. He's going to deal with the institution of marriage. Remember, that's the primary vehicle through which we uh, join in the work of the Lord. Now, for those of you who are single, I, just, I did not just say that you are broken and unable to do anything in the kingdom. I said primary. That's critical because the first part of the verse is actually going to be for those of you in here who are single. That doesn't mean that those of you who are married can check out because I have something to say to you out of that. And the second part is for those of you who are married and those of you who are single don't get to check out in the second part because I have something to say to you out of that as well. Uh, and so it actually will crisscross a bit. So uh, stay with me. But he's going to deal with marriage here because that is one of the primary ways in which he displays his glory in this world. And so it becomes critical. 
that we think it through uh, and that we have a biblical perspective on marriage. Because uh, my first question for you is, uh, what's the primary criteria by which we marry someone in our culture? And again, you're going to get to yell out some answers. It's kind of like family feud, but we don't have the thing up here. And I'm not Steve Harvey. Uh, and so, uh, or what was the other guy's name? Lynn Richard Dawson. And I'm not kissing anybody. So uh, if, for those of you who know the Richard Dawson reference. Um, so what would you say are some of the top reasons that people actually get married or influence who we marry in our culture? Love. Love. Um, Actually, maybe. Uh, that's actually kind of low on the list. What? Did someone say hotness? I need to talk to you afterwards. I'm okay. But actually, it's interesting. Uh, that, one, that one rates. Kind of should probably be with the loved one, but, but we'll talk about that one in a second. But no, it's not in the top three. Social status is in the top three. What else? Huh? Money? Uh... That would probably be with social status. No. No. Uh, no, actually, where you live. Your, your locale uh, determines in the top three who you marry more, more than anything else. Locale, uh, social status, and the last one, uh, which, which is kind of interesting, um, uh, really just, just relates to, and this goes back to Tom Oakey, I wouldn't call it hotness. It's actually a, a more technical term would be the, um, the uh, uh, exciting of your limbic system, right? And, and, and what's interesting about that though, and the reason that's not exactly correct is your limbic system, and this is real, this is, we're actually, we're not talking dirty up here. This is actually, we're talking uh, um, uh, brain science, your limbic system is most influenced by, are you ready? Your parents. So you tend to be attracted to most viscerally people who are most like one of your parents, could be the mother or the father. So for those of you, uh, Joseph has a look of horror on his face right now. He's like, wait, 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 wait. So, so, <laughs> I also do counseling as well. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, so how we choose a mate is most dictated by our parents, where we live, and social status, more than anything else. That's what the studies show, and they're secular as well as Christian. Um, those are the top things, right? Now, what's the divorce rate in the country at current? Yeah, it's actually closer to 60 inside the church and probably about 50-55 in culture because a lot more people are not getting married at all. Uh, and so the, it's a drop, but that's not a true indicator of what's going on relationally. So what does that tell us about the top three reasons of how we're choosing a mate just on the surface? It's not, it's not working great. It's about a 50-50 shot. Um, but if you look inside the numbers as to the people who stay married, um, which is interesting, the studies indicate that that's not why they got married. The people who stay together. That there's something deeper that, that holds them in the dark of the night, because uh, as, uh, as many artists have dis described, Dave Zum being one of them, sooner or later, you lose your shape or you take on a new shape that's uh, <laughs> uh, uh, not the shape that, that, that instituted the limbic system, as it were. 
So, the second thing I would say, it's interesting, in our culture, there's been all this discussion about marriage doesn't really matter. And it's interesting that that really hasn't held. Even secular culture has not been able to prove that that is in fact true. In fact, it's circled back around, and if you read a lot of the stuff that's coming out now in terms of marriage and family, marriage has a ton to do with the condition of our culture. Uh, and and it's, it's thing, now they're trying to figure it out from that side of it. How do they, since they let the horse out of the gate, that marriage doesn't matter, how do they now circle back around and go, eh, we, we could have been wrong, but you need to listen to us now. What I want you to know is that God from Genesis 1 has always said marriage matters significantly. Mar- as marriage goes, so goes society. Uh, and for any of you who, who maybe question that a little bit, just take a look at, at situations where uh, that is called in, that, that, that marriage has either crumbled or something has happened in terms of the two-parent home uh, and, and these kinds of things. I was recently listening to a podcast uh, called The Promise, and it's uh, Nashville Public Radio, and it's about this uh, housing uh, development called John Casey Homes. And uh, within that, that pocket, it's a great story, by the way. They do a great job. I love the fact that we're now returning, as if we just discovered it, to radio serials. We're like, oh, it's the best thing ever, just sitting around listening. What? <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so what's interesting, is a, it's a wonderfully told story, but on many occasions, the, the, this idea of fatherless homes and broken marriages having a significant impact on generations of people comes heavy to the fore. And so we know, we know that marriage matters. And God has always told us that marriage matters. Malachi is trying to say to us, marriage matters. It matters in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, so it matters in terms of mission. It matters in terms of how we display the glory of God. And yes, it's primary. Some people are called to singleness, um, and that is a unique gift that God doesn't give to everyone. Um, but, but on the whole, how he displays his glory uh, is, is through marriage. Now, every passage that you ever read about marriage, inherent within it is an admission that it is hard. And we're going to see that in Malachi. He doesn't shy away from the fact that it is not an easy thing, and you are going to need everything that heaven has to offer you to make it work. In fact, God admits it in sending his son and using marriage language, which is why we read from from Ephesians 5 for the assurance of pardon. That was not just a subtle backhand way to try to tell my wife she needs to straighten up. Wasn't? Because if, if you recognize the indicative in that is what Christ did first, not what we will do. We can only do what we do out of response to the finished work of Christ. That's how hard it is. You need a perfect person to come down from heaven, die, rise from the dead, go back, intercede on your behalf, send an invisible thing called the Holy Spirit, give you a multi-thousand page book to read to even come close to getting it right. We need to respect that. And we need to show that respect with how we talk about marriage, how we talk about our spouses, how we engage our spouses, and how we engage those among us who are single. Um, And so as we step into that, all that stands as backdrop. But listen to what Pieter Verhoff says, Old Testament scholar. He says, 
When the spiritual and religious leaders of God's people do not comply with the elevated demands of their calling, a moral decline takes place, generally manifesting itself in, among other things, various malpractices concerning the marriage life of the people. As the worship of the people goes, so goes the marriage and family. That's just, they're tied together. There's no way around uh, failing to see that worship affects ethics and the chief place your ethic is played out is in marriage and family. Think about the number of people whose, whose moms or dads um, have this great outward show at church. And many of you, I'm very sensitive to this, have suffered this. They have a great outward show at church, but they have a terrible ethic at home. What traditionally is the trajectory of the child in terms of God? Traditionally, they go away, but God in great grace often brings them back because he is steadfast, because he is faithful, because he is good. However, however, it still means that the parent will answer for how they have lived and how that has affected that child because that child is in the image of God. Many of you have also had parents that were both public and private, was the same person, and it's had a phenomenal impact on you and, and for the good and has drawn you closer to the Lord your God. It's not a guarantee, so works don't save, don't hear me wrongly, but parents, husbands and wives, fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, you, how you live matters. And that's what this is going to tell us this morning. So, uh, the first part is a question of being equally yoked in marriage. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God, God's word, this is Malachi 2, 10 through 12. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, I want to say straight away, this, this really is to single people, or those who are not currently married. So that means, hopefully, our third graders on up should pay attention here, um, because there's something to be said to you to think through here. But I want to say something straight away that's really important. So this is for everybody to remember. So pay attention to what I'm about to say, both married and not married. To love our single people well, it is critical. And for single people to be able to uh, navigate this, what I'm about to say well, it is critical that you recognize your singleness is not a problem to be fixed. It is not a disease to be cured. Do you understand? Your singleness is not a problem to be fixed or a disease to be cured. What it is, is an opportunity to be cultivated. Now, why did I say it that way? So often, I think, where the church really fails to serve single people well, is we put all kind of effort and energy into trying to get them unsingled, right? And, and that they are incomplete if they don't have somebody next to them, which is hard because our church is very family heavy. And praise God that that's one of our largest mission fields, right? However, if we go around trying to solve or cure their singleness, we are communicating that they in and of themselves are not enough. 
and that somehow until that is fixed, they really aren't of much use to the church unless we need a babysitter. Now, our single people oftentimes are very willing to serve us, the church, in that regard, but that can't be all that we ask them for. And um, as we know, singleness is not easy. Just as marriage is not easy, being a human in a fallen world bearing the image of God is just not easy. It's nuanced when you're married. It's nuanced when you're single and either don't want to be or you feel called to be, but are trying to figure out how to navigate the world. So where we could serve our single people well is jettisoning the idea that their singleness is in some way, shape, or form uh, their, uh, part of their fallenness. Now, if you are single and you don't feel called to singleness, right, then what Malachi is saying here is critically important. And what we talked about early, earlier becomes critically important because what's going on here is that, um, and, and this is why we located Malachi sometime in the time of Nehemiah. If you remember, both um, Ezra and Nehemiah dealt with these issues. Ezra dealt with it by tearing his own clothes and his own hair out. Nehemiah went next level on them and was like, no, 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 I'm not hurting me. I'm going to snatch some of your beard out and slap you upside your head. Now, we can't do that anymore uh, based on what I read in the New Testament. Uh, but, but, but Nehemiah felt strongly and he wanted to make a statement. So Malachi is dealing in that same issue. So what has happened here is that the Israelites have been acting upon their limbic systems. They've used the eye test to decide who to marry. They've used the love or emotion test to figure out who to marry. And so they're just marrying whoever is in the countryside, whoever is closest to them, whoever they find attractive. Now you may say, well, but didn't, didn't the Abrahamic covenant say that you should, I mean, we want people to come in and marriage is, missional marriage is a great way to do, first of all, it's not a great way. Uh, sometimes you, you stumble across it and God is gracious, but it is not the primary way we should go about trying to bring in the nations. See, the problem here is that they continue to worship the God of their fathers, Baal or um, Ashtaroth or whoever else. And the problem then becomes the husband, uh, in this case, uh, which would have been the case given the kind of the structure of their society, he'll, go to, he'll still go to temple. He still makes sacrifices, right? He goes to his church and she goes to hers. He worships his way and she worships hers. Now, what about if her way of worship is to sacrifice the first child? Who wins that battle? Do you cut it in half? Well, you can't because as Solomon proved, uh, that means the child doesn't live. Nobody wins. What if her way of worship is that the females would be reserved for temple prostitution? Who wins? You see, this is why this is incredibly problematic. And it still today is problematic if you didn't know, in fact, the New Testament says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, do not be unequally yoked. And we wrestle with that. And again, we, we, we struggle to, to see and to understand what this means. And so 
we oftentimes say, yeah, 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 we'll, 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 we just got such good chemistry, which is just code for limbic system, right? It's biochemistry. We got such good chemistry, we'll figure it out. We'll work it out. We don't have to both worship the same way. I mean, we'll, we'll, she can do her thing and I'll do my thing or he can do his thing and I'll do my thing. Right? Does, how does that play out? How does that work once you have kids? And let me tell you what you're teaching your children and what they were teaching their children. It doesn't matter who you worship. It doesn't matter who you worship. You pick. Now, does that seem right to you? And anybody who has been, who is, is married and has, has married in a way that would be defined as unequally yoked, let me say something to you. I did not just give you license to dump the other, right? Peter actually says, and Paul does too, no, you, you, gotta, you made that decision, you made that covenant. Your best uh, resource now is prayer. To pray that there would be unity in the worship of the Lord your God. You can't, it, it's not, you don't get to out because you go home and you're like, hey, you're more charismatic uh, than, you know, I'm Presbyterian. We can't have that. You got to go. Cameron said, I-, I apologize. Or you can't go home and go, nah, you're Catholic. You know, Pope's like the Antichrist, I think. Calvin said it. Somebody said it. And so you, you got to go. I, just not, I did not just say the Pope's Antichrist. That was me quoting someone else. That's clarification. Uh, if he is, I, I don't know about it. Um, and so, so you can't go home and say, no, you, you like to worship in the trees. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't work for me. Uh, you you got to go. So you don't have license to do that, nor should you look down upon your spouse at this point because they don't worship like you do. You are where you are right now, and the Lord God is sovereign, and he is powerful, and he is good. Take up the means of grace on their behalf and your own and for the sake of your children and use them. But if you're not yet married, um, or if you are divorced and would like to be married again, then it becomes critical, critical that you're the chief thing that you look at, the chief marker for which you choose to marry someone is the impact that it is going to have on your ability to glorify the Lord your God. And so many times when we do premarital counseling, one of the questions that I ask very early on is, what is it that you think that you can do together that you could not do separately to glorify the Lord your God? Because the Lord is sovereign. If he brings two people together, it's to do more than they could have done independently. And so often, it hadn't even been thought about. And you know, as well as I do, when it's the first time you're hearing it, that's hard to answer. And so you just kind of come up with something religious and it's not really something you're committed to. And you got to be careful there. There's a lot of great people in this world, a lot of great people. And you could be married to lots of them. But, but the Lord has in his sovereignty, and I'm not one of those that says it's all about soulmates and you got to find the one. I think it's probably a smaller range. But within that range, it is incumbent upon you to ask that question. You can like them. They can excite your limbic system. They can meet the eye test. They can, they can have great social status. There can be all sorts of fringe benefits to being married to them. But if in any way, shape, or form, it is going to diminish your ability to glorify the Lord your God and do what he's called you to do, 
you should not marry them. And in fact, based on that, you have actually a broader range of choices as it turns out. Because it's not all based on attraction, which everybody admits, both secular, in terms of secular psychology, uh, marriage and family therapists, neurology, it doesn't last. And when you don't get that limbic rush, when you look across the table over your froyo, <laughs> maybe it's just the froyo, I don't know, uh, something begins to shift. And now what is your commitment going to be based on? Is your commitment now going to be based on fear and what your neighbors are going to think of you? Is your commitment going to be fear and what we're going to think of you? Right? Or more important, do you have some, a firm foundation? Now you know why we sang how firm a foundation. You have to have a very firm foundation. So if you're, you, listen to me, if you are not yet married, it, it is going, it, and it's, it is hard the butterflies, they're real, aren't they? I remember the first girl I had butterflies with, I was non-Christian, tried desperately to move in with her and the Lord was so gracious that it was not allowed to happen. It would have been horrible, not because of her, you know why, but because of me and the alchemy of us coming together. Susan and I broke up. I became a Christian a week later. She was wondering, have I toiled for nothing? <laughs> the question still remains. <laughs> so for, for, and listen, it's, I'm, not, I'm not telling you who to marry. I'm not, I'm not making it necessarily even easier. It's actually Harder. I get that. This is why the church has to love its single people and the students really well. Because it is one of the, just trying to figure that out is one of those maddening aspects of our entire humanity. It's one of the reasons that Aldous Huxley writes Brave New World. It's one of the reasons that Tinder has been a wildfire. It's all based on limbic system. You know how long somebody looks at somebody before they make a decision on Tinder? It's the swipe app. You know how long? Take a real quick guess. How many seconds? Two? That's one longer than the truth. They make their decision in a split second. And now you got to understand with Tinder, there's not a lot of information. It's not like OkCupid or any of those where it's like a lot more information based. It's you're just swiping, Right? Now, we've got friends who, got, who met on Tinder that are married and they're doing great, but it was actually a joke. Uh, they, they, they weren't going there for that. Somebody set her up on it. Anyway, it's a long story. But <laughs> the, the, the situations where it works out are not near as many as you would think or that you would actually would think. It doesn't work that often. And so think about that. You're making relational decisions on a one-second decision. That is crazy. Sometimes it'll take up to four seconds, which I really appreciate uh, in terms of counseling. Oh, four seconds. Well, then we've got something to talk about. Um, so so here, here's the thing. So 
The church has to love those who are single well. You can't, so think about the pressure that we put on them. This goes back to my statement. If we say your singleness is a problem that must be fixed, in order for us to hang out and not be weird and you not be the third, fourth, fifth, seventh, eighth, whatever odd number wheel that you may feel like, it'd be better. And I get it. And we need to also recognize that it is sometimes hard for them. If they long not to be single, This is where we have to to, to disciple and be part of their lives and earn enough chips for them to talk to us about the people that they may or may not marry. We saw this beautifully displayed in Macon. There was a small group uh, in which some friends of ours, uh, she was dating a guy um, and uh, she was actually going to be a um, pediatrician. Uh, So she, she was very bright. And the young man that she was trying to be engaged to had become abusive. There were people in that small group that, um, that were just, they were bulldogs in, a, in the best sense of the word. Um, the kind of people that you kind of put behind glass that says, don't break. And for the love of God, if you do, make sure you put it back. Uh, and so, but just wonderful people. And they rallied around her and they had enough chips with her. And they said, Jessica, no, you cannot marry him. And they pleaded with her and they prayed with her and they loved her and she didn't marry him. And she felt, as you would imagine, after investing so much of herself in this young man uh, that she was never gonna be able to find anybody again. And the Lord brought one of the best human beings I have ever met on this planet. A guy named Sam, he's an Air Force guy. And they eventually uh, got married and they have a little boy uh, now and live over off of 285, and Sam's actually uh, done some seminary work, and just a wonderful thing, but it was hard. And there were some times she wanted to quit on this group of people, but they would not let her go under. They loved her phenomenally well. We saw that happen with some others as well. There's also stories where it doesn't work out where people don't listen. That's the risk, right? But we got to be close enough to people to be able to know what's going on with them, to be able to speak into those circumstances and situations. And so if they're feeling pressure from us, they got to hurry up and fix it. They're probably going to make a really bad decision. And we got to be careful that in trying to play matchmaker sometimes that we're not communicating you're not enough. Even though we may say, no, but I got a golden ticket. I got a golden ticket for you. Remember the limbic systems in play. It's not primary, but it plays in, right? And so we, the church, can do a whole lot better in terms of how we love uh, those who are single. You who are single, uh, I want to challenge you to really kind of think through. You need to have in your mind, you need to be praying about, considering what would a marriage that glorifies God look like? What is it that is going to allow me and my giftings and abilities? We, we saw this a number of times just in youth pastors, where the youth pastor would come and either, I blame him, I, do not, I don't blame his wife. He should have known his wife better to not take that kind of a job. But it was a terrible job for her and he ended up having to quit and it, it cost the students. Because you know that youth pastor turnover is incredible. It's just devastating on students. And in fact, we had two youth pastors go through that. And you may say, well, what was y'all's selection process? Listen, people just lie. We tried in the interview process to figure out and understand that and challenge that, but they just lied to get the job. And when they got the job, they couldn't keep the job because it was such a strain and so destructive upon their marriage. 
And so this is, this is critical that we think through. I, I couldn't, I, I don't know of anybody else I could be married to to do what I do and what God's called me to do than Susan. I'm so thankful for her and how she has loved me well, loved our children well, um, and, and, you know, just has this rich vision and always has. It's one of the reasons I married her. She has, she's had this rich vision of what God has called her to do she is not second fiddle. In fact, some of my, my calling here has been about her. She has found a wonderful calling at First Care Women's Clinic that is, that is a, of same or greater importance than what I do. And amen. Um, and so, so it, becomes, it becomes critical that in, in choosing uh, who you are going to marry, that you not, um, that you not compromise on this issue, if, if, you, if you at all can. And don't, this is why God says, don't be giving yourself away. I see so many marriages that occur because they've given so much of themselves, both physically, mentally, and spiritually, that they think, well, I mean, I, yeah, we've crossed so many boundaries. Might as well stay with this. What else is coming? As if you're sovereign. You've already decided. Don't do that. Know that the Lord your God is good and that he loves you and he will provide. We, as a church, uh, had the opportunity to walk with uh, Amanda Budkowski, who's now Amanda Bauder, uh, through her singleness. And it was messy, and it wasn't great, but Kristen and her family did a fantastic job of loving her well, as did many of you. And the Lord provided David, who loves her phenomenally well. Um, and so what, what a gift that is, that we, the church, can serve in that respect. And so uh, it's something we want to be growing in. But remember this. Singleness is not a problem to be fixed. It's not a disease to be cured. It's an opportunity to be cultivated for the glory of the Lord. So listen to what Roger Ellsworth says about this section. He says, we may be inclined to think that what goes on in our homes doesn't have any bearing on the rest of life, but it does. Here in Malachi's day, we find men going to meet the Lord at the temple and the Lord points them back to their homes. Family life colors, influences every other part of life. How is worship shaping your view of marriage and how you live it out? See, it's, it's that worship should shape marriage, not the other way around. This is why when you, you get married and you're unequally yoked, and that begins to shape how you worship or affect where you can worship or affect what you can do in your calling, that's backwards. That's the cart before the horse. So it's critical that if you're single, that this matter to you. And then what impact would being unequally yoked in marriage have on one's worship and the raising of children? It has a supreme impact. In fact, the impact is so large that let me read to you verse 13. Listen to what the, or verse 12 rather. Listen to what the Lord says. It's one of the reasons I held this back. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, meaning marries a daughter of a foreign God and she continue to worship that God. Now, if she convert, you can marry foreigners if they convert. But if she's going to continue to worship her God, then you can't do it. Um, may they be cut off from the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now, that may sound very harsh to your ears. Right? But the New Testament speaks of it. 
1 Corinthians 5, there's a situation in Corinth where the stepsons are engaging in uh, illicit behavior with their stepmoms. Paul says, excommunicate them, which means kick them out of the fellowship. Don't even eat with them. Cut them off. But then in 2 Corinthians 2, he reminds the Corinthians, but make sure that they know that you still love them. And that if they repent and return, there is a place for them at the table. What Malachi is calling for here is, look, it'd be better if these guys had to taste the full weight of their sin through excommunication. The point of which would be to get them to repent and return, not be destroyed forever. Remember his grace to Esau and the Edomites, 1,600 years. And think about how marriage played into the Edomites' demise. If you know the story of Esau, he marries straight away. Women with foreign gods. In fact, it troubles Rebekah's heart, his mother. And then on it goes, the Edomites, as they continue to syncretize and blend with the surrounding culture, the entire nation is destroyed. But here, this is the call to church discipline so that they would return and be restored. That's the purpose of all church discipline. I know that church discipline can make some of you nervous when you hear that because uh, you wonder, it's going to be heavy-handed. I just served on jury duty this week, and I'm here to tell you it's, it's interesting out there. Uh, and so, uh, so, no, it's not intended to be heavy-handed. In fact, it is to be velveted in glove. It is to be restorative. It is to give every opportunity. This is why some of you at times can feel like we're moving too slow. You may feel like, man, why don't y'all do something? Because the ground is delicate and the shoots are tender and the reed is bruised and the flax is smoking, but it's almost out, but we want to be patient with it. And then there are times when we do have to move. You're like, why are y'all moving so fast? Because every effort has been exhausted and the only thing left is to remove them from fellowship. But what we want to commit to is every, every, every opportunity when it comes to these things. And so the Lord is calling for it to be restorative, spoken by Malachi. Now, let's turn to verses 13 through 16. And this is a question of the purpose of marriage and the violence of divorce. If you would give again attention to the reading of God's word. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of his youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now Malachi now turns to those who are married. 
See, they also had a problem in that day that the married folks were looking at the greener pastures. They were seeing all these unmarried Israelites getting to hook up with all these wild, exotic women from the hills, which Solomon had taught them how to do, by the way, long ago and rent the kingdom in half. They'd already seen this go bad. It's part of why they were in exile. And yet they returned to it very quickly, as Peter would say, like a dog to their own vomit. And so they were divorcing casting out their own wives or engaging in polygamy and and reducing the status of their own wives, right? And choosing instead to bring in those who would worship foreign gods. You have the same problem, right? It's confusing to the children that you have. It's confusing to the children that you will have. It just basically indicates it doesn't matter who you worship and what you do. Go with your, listen, have you heard this before? Tell me if you've heard this before. Just go with your heart. Just go, just, if it feels good, do it and get tested afterwards, right? Go with your heart, go with your gut, do what you think is best. As if there's no barriers whatsoever, as if there's no guide rails, if there's no banks of the river for us at all. We uh, radically individualistic, rebellious people. They were going so far as to divorce their wives. Now, what was going on here and what that comment was that was being made and one of the reasons that God returns to Genesis 1 and 2 and quotes it essentially to them. What he's saying is, I have provided her for you. I am sovereign. And so by divorcing them, they're saying, Lord, your provision is not near enough. Notice how he refers to her. She's not referred to as a servant. She's referred to as a companion. It's language of intimacy. Just like for Adam, Eve was his helpmate. She completed him. This is what we've talked about in here before. One of the reasons that Eve was formed from the rib, according to Jewish scholars, was potentially because that rib would protect the man's heart. Other side. <laughs> but it's important that we recognize that this isn't, it isn't that God just wants everything to be arbitrary. You just have to suck it up, buttercup. You married who you married, and there can be no joy, right? You just, you just tough it up, grit. No, it can be cultivated into something so much greater, but it's going to be hard. That's why he says twice. Anytime something's repeated, it's worth noting. He says, guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. What does guard mean? You have to be active and intentional and thoughtful. Guard is not something that just happens naturally. To push against and seek not to be faithless means you are at risk to be faithless. This is all of us. And so for those of you who are married, my question to you and worth thinking about is how are you cultivating uh, the glory of God in your spouse? How are you cultivating your spouse's ability to use their gifts in the kingdom, uh, to use the things, the ways in which God has made them so that they can serve, or is it all about you? A tyrannical king or queen um, only has cynical subjects who sooner or later will overthrow given half a chance. 
So it's important that we be other-oriented. This is the loving of neighbor. You've heard me say this often. Your spouse and your children are your nearest neighbors. And notice what God says. His great desire is that you would produce godly offspring. This is both the Abrahamic covenant, which says very clearly, very clearly, that God will bless those who bless the people of God and who come from the people of God. And then the Great Commission picks that up and extends it into the spiritual realm. It's not just by progeny and blood. Now it's also by the spreading of the gospel itself through our gifts and abilities. So anything that we do that would put someone in the position to have to stand before God as judge instead of father means that we will be judged for having done so. This is why he's not mincing words here. Marriage has a significant impact on this reality. You are being observed all the time. I'm not, this isn't an NSA discussion. You're being observed all the time by your neighbors and coworkers. How you talk about your spouse makes all the rest of your witness stand or fall. How you talk about your children makes all the rest of your witness stand or fall. And they, they are harsh out there. Trust me, I, I didn't always work in the church. We can be harsh inside the church sometimes too, but, but I'm talking about in the world where I noticed that if you said you were a Christian and you talked bad about your spouse or family, judgment was swift in coming. You were disregarded and, and spoke poor of. You were a hypocrite. If you were married and they caught you checking out the situation, right, looking at the options, appreciating God's glory, as some Christians like to say, which is garbage, um, uh, they judged extremely harshly, even though they themselves would do something different. Now, why do you think that is? Because even they know there's a high, there ought to be a higher standard. If the rocks are going to cry out, what makes you think the pagans won't too? Woe be unto us if we don't recognize the weight and the gift that marriage is to us. Now, you may be in a situation that is difficult at current for any number of reasons. Again, this is where the church has got to be the church. I beg you, come to us before the post-mortem. Come to us when you know you're struggling so we can walk with you and try to help you. And you may say, but I already know what you're going to say. Just ask my wife. You don't always know what I'm going to say. Sometimes I get a little wild and say something crazy. It could be fun. But come talk to us. Let us serve you in prayer and the means of grace. Too often when someone's had an affair, I think to myself, why didn't you come to us three years ago when the light had gone out in your limbic system and you were beginning to look around and knew you were in trouble? We're not going to judge you for that. We long for things to be repaired and restored. And you may say, how can you repair that? I can't, but I know the one who can. And I know the means to get to the one who can. And I know the means that can be uh, uh, the, of the spirit that can, that can help you. So if you're struggling, you do not let the devil say, they don't care about your stuff and they get tired of hearing that stuff. No, trust me. We never get tired of hearing it about it before it's post-mortem. Never. We do get tired of hearing about it post-mortem. Do you follow what I'm saying? Post-mortem just means when it's already decided, done, and over. So bug me, use up every minute of the six days a week to which I am called to work to keep you from 
going post-mortem. I would much rather expend myself and my energy, I'm sure the elders would too, seeing something reconciled and built back up when we have a chance instead of when it's too, too far gone. We're not here to judge you. We've all been there. Ain't none of us can throw stones at any of you in any of your struggles, right? We can't. And so um, let us be a people who recognize the gift that marriage is to the church and to the world, the vehicle that it was intended to be from creation, from Genesis 1 and 2. Let us be a people who guard our marriages, who guard ourselves against faithlessness, who use the means of grace and use community uh, to, to, to walk in admonition of the Lord. Because otherwise, and this description is, is very, very salient, you basically cover yourself with violence. See, so often when, when people get divorced, they think they're getting rid of the burden and the problem. For those of you who are divorced, is that true? Does it somehow all of a sudden make it, you just got a whole lot better because you're not in the same house anymore. The legal part made it so much easier. No, it doesn't. And in fact, for the one who thinks they're unburdening themselves, actually they're taking on a much greater burden, a crippling one. And in this culture, the women oftentimes were bore much greater the weight in terms of provision and otherwise. And so, so the Lord is not pleased with that. He's not pleased with the, the weaker vessels being marginalized. This is why it says the husband covers himself with violence. And it repeats again the challenge to us that this is not natural and it's not easy. Listen to what Ian Duguid and Matthew Harmon say about this. They say, marriage is intended to be much more than merely having someone to come home to and sit beside the fire with at night. Marriage is intended to be a spiritual union in which we share the deepest longings, aspirations of our hearts with our spouse. It is supposed to be a context in which we share our spiritual struggles and pray with and for one another. It involves sharpening one another, rebuking one another when necessary, edifying one another spiritually, and encouraging one another in Christ. It is designed to be a deep and lasting friendship in which a couple serve the Lord together, building one another up in mutual faith. I don't think I've heard a better description of marriage. You should take that and pray through that uh, this Sabbath Lord day and talk through that with your spouse. And just listen, you're going to be weak in some areas and that's okay if you'll work on them, if you'll cultivate them. And you may say, I don't want to mess around getting all holy. That's going to take all the fun out of marriage. That's just not true. Uh, as, as Chesterton said, you ain't even tried it yet to be able to make a statement like that. That was a paraphrase on my part. So what role should marriage play in people using their gifts in the service to the Lord in his kingdom and in raising up the coming generation to know God's love for them? See, we, for whatever reason, think that, that everything is just neutral and that we're just kind of these blank tablets. No, actually, that's bad theology. We are broken. We are separated from God. To be a sinner is not a moral claim purely. It's a theological claim. That means we're all in the same boat. We're all equally separated, both the pridefully arrogant who think they're doing well, as well as those who are just drink and swill. And so we need restoration. And, and, and so your children are born sinners, and they too need to know the way to the Lord their God. 
They're not going to up and find it for themselves, even though they swear if you just let them try, they'll do it. Okay. Uh, that's just not true. And it's not that you need to be oppressive about it. You do need to listen to your children in the sense that uh, you need to communicate it in ways they understand and that acknowledge their gifts and abilities, right? And you need to live consistently enough that you ain't got to apologize to God for how you represented him to his image bearers in your own home. So Malachi 2.10 through 16 teaches us two things, that our worship shapes our marriages, and that's the way it should be not the other way around. Although it happens, and if that's where you are, it's not the end of the story for you. Jesus Christ is so good, and God is so faithful, and he is so steadfast, but you gotta work on it. And then secondly, that our marriages shape our service to the Lord and the coming generations. This matters. Now, there's no way I could have covered every possible nuance or every possible qualification. So if there's anything that you have further questions on, or maybe you're struggling with, or thought I said, or maybe interpreted I said, come talk to me, or come talk to the elders, and we can work through that. We want to serve you and want to help build up in this regard. Yes, this is hard. Yes, it sounds like one more thing for you to worry about is if you're not just trying to survive as it is. See, that's the problem. God didn't design you to just survive, to half drown every single week, and yes, you're going to have to prioritize. And yes, you're going to have to make some hard decisions. Welcome to adulthood. Welcome to Christianity. Um, you have everything you need. So let's work with each other, help each other, build each other up in this. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us first because there ain't no way we could love each other well otherwise. Thank you that you gave us such a beautiful example in the person and work of Jesus Christ that you have wed us to him, that there is a marriage supper coming at which we will dine on the finest of meats and drink the finest of wines and everything will be made new. And at long last, we won't feel like we're drowning. We won't feel like we're just surviving. We won't feel like we're being burdened down. And all the mistakes that have been made in this life will have no say. God, thank you that you are so good to us and that you are faithful and you're patient and you're long-suffering and you're kind and you're forgiving and that you even say that sin must stop after so many generations and different circumstances. You're so good, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you've given us a vehicle by which we can work with you in this world. May we take it seriously. Help us, your people, to begin where we are to cultivate marriages and to cultivate uh, those um, among us who are single who long to be married or who are called to be single. Help us, the church, cultivate those things. For your glory, may it rise from your worship. In Christ's name, amen.